Let me open our class time with a word of prayer, and then we can all make our way in our Bibles to 1 Peter at the end of chapter 1, which is what we're going to be completing today. So let me start us with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege you give us weekly to come and gather together with other Christians, to hear your word, to worship you. And I pray today, Lord, that you would help us to have ears to hear. I pray that the word would go forth with clarity. I pray that you'd help me to explain um, clearly what is here and that it would be applied to our hearts by your spirit. And we also pray for the opportunity we have in the worship service to hear from Pastor Steve as he opens the word and also as we celebrate the Lord's table, Lord, the opportunity we have to remember your death. I pray that you would prepare our hearts even now. If there's unconfessed sin, that we would confess it so that we would be ready to um, truly remember and be appreciative with great, great gratitude for what you've done for us at the cross. And I also pray for this opportunity in Haiti to bless these children at the orphanage. I thank you for Emil and Angie's desire to adopt and to rescue a child and give him a, a life that would be incomprehensible to him in an orphanage. I pray, Lord, for all the other kids that this little missions trip would be a blessing to them, that they would hear truth, and that you might use your word to save these children, not even just from the orphanage, but save them from their sins. And we pray that you would continue to work in all of our lives. Help us to be attentive and mindful of opportunities we have to serve and to bless others. And I pray, Lord, that as we study today, you will help us see first and foremost how to apply the truths that we study in our own lives. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we have done the last few times I've taught, we are in First Peter chapter 1, and we are covering verses 22 to 25. And I really spent two weeks covering verse 22, and today I hope to cover the rest of the text. But the overarching point of this is telling us how to live a life of obedience. Peter is addressing Christians who have a lot of hurdles in their way. In fact, they could make a lot of excuses as to why they can't obey. Their lives are difficult. Many of them have been persecuted. They are suffering for their faith. He even refers to it as fiery trials. These are hard times for some of them. And yet, in the midst of this, he doesn't spend time talking about their problems. He talks about their privileges. That's how he begins the letters, telling them the privileges they have because even though their struggles are hard, they are in a wonderful position because they've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. They were born again because of God's mercy and they're having the opportunity in life to live out their faith in a way that brings God glory. But Peter also reminds them there are expectations attached to our salvation. We were not saved because of anything we did, but at the point when God showed us mercy and redeemed us and saved us, he expects us to reflect his character. The largest expression of this, verses 15 and 16, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And I think everything that follows is really an expression of this, of showing us what holiness looks like in various settings. And 
Peter makes it clear it's not just our actions. It is our actions, but it's not just our actions. It's also supposed to be how we think, what's going on in our hearts. And ultimately, as we come to the end of chapter 1, he's showing us how this looks in a certain context. Verse 22, again, I spent two weeks covering this, so I'm just going to briefly review it, but it is the first principle of loving one another comes from this verse. I said it this way, loving one another is mandated by God. It reads this way, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. We know from Jesus' own teaching that the two greatest commandments involve love. Love for God, love for your neighbor. This particular mandate to love other Christians is in the context of loving your neighbor. It's a specific subset. Certainly we're to love the world. We're supposed to try and be loving towards unbelievers. But there is a specific duty involved with believers. And I can't reteach everything I taught in the last couple of messages. They're available online. But at the beginning of this verse, Peter is basically explaining to them that they are prepared to obey. If I could paraphrase, he's saying, in essence, since you've repented and believed the gospel and your sins have been wiped away, you now have from God a love for other Christians that is a brotherly love. It's been given to you by God. It's not something you're supposed to go out and work up. As an unbeliever, you can't have that love specifically. But at the moment of your salvation, when you repented and believed, when you answered the question, what must I do to be saved, and you answered it correctly, you responded in obedience to repent and believe, God gave you the ability to love. And since you have that ability to love... He says you're supposed to fervently love one another from the heart. That's the ultimate imperative command. It's a plural command to all of us to exhibit this type of love individually but collectively. I tried to stress before the way this is phrased, it's not something that is optional. It's not saying, well, if you feel like it, this is a good thing to add to your day. This is something that is required of every believer. And Peter is actually doing nothing more than telling us to live out a reality that Jesus talked about. In John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, Jesus said this, A new commandment I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Peter is echoing this exact same teaching and making clear this is not Something that is in addition to Christianity, this is part and parcel. This is at the core of Christianity. And as I explained more in my last teaching, this can manifest itself in countless ways. But the reality is this is tangible action. This isn't sitting around and working up good, warm, fuzzy feelings. This is about meeting needs. When you hear of needs, you meet those needs. Praise God, Debbie and I were recipients of this this week. We've had issues with our kitchen. There were several people that reached out to us and brought us meals. It was a tangible act of love. Again, it's not an addition to faith. It is at the core of who we are. 
I mentioned last time I taught, we have to be vulnerable with one another. We have to be willing to let other people know of our burdens. And if we let people know of our burdens, they can exercise love towards us. We have to get past our pride. That's a stumbling block for me. I don't like to ask for help. I don't like to receive help. But it's not because it's an unbiblical thing. It's because I've got too much pride that I still am struggling to kill. I love to help others. I don't want others to help me. That's unbiblical. Let me tell you, that's an unbiblical thought. So you want to get blessed. You don't want somebody else. Amen. Amen. And I actually was rebuked in a loving way by a good friend one time that said, wait a minute, don't you enjoy helping others? Yeah. Why are you denying me that joy? Well, I could think all day as a lawyer, but he was a lawyer who was a Christian too. So I could have dusted off my best stuff and he could have given it right back to me. I want to stress this point as we get ready to move on though. If you know Jesus as your Savior, you should be loving other believers right now. We have no excuse. There's nothing else that needs to happen first. We have an implanted brotherly love from the Lord. We now need to exercise an even more comprehensive love. There's nothing in this phraseology which would allow for delayed obedience. Well, I've got these issues that I have to address before I can love others. No, you love now. Well, I've got to get my life in order. I need to read and pray more first. Do all those things, but love anyway right now. Loving from the heart. Not as a showy thing like the Pharisees did. Not calling attention to yourself. Rather doing things just because you want to bless another child of God who's hurting. Now, I say you don't have an excuse. I think really what's left in the text that we're covering this morning makes this crystal clear. Responding to the gospel by faith has already equipped you with everything you need to show love. And I think Peter makes this clear with the rest of the verses. So I originally broke this message down into two parts. Two principles of loving one another. First was loving one another is mandated by God. Here's the second point. Loving one another is made possible by the word. Loving one another is made possible by the word. I'm going to read the section again before I start dissecting it. Verse 22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Verse 23, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Peter didn't just say love. He's explaining further how it is that he knows we can love. So I'm going to try and discuss this in little component parts, but I think more so than in other times, this is going to come together very easily. And I think you're going to see, again, without much effort on my part, how this relates to the command we have to love. Verse 23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. Now Peter is making a theological statement here by way of contrast. 
And it goes back to a word I used a couple of weeks ago in my message, and it's the word regeneration. Peter doesn't use that word. He's talking about that concept. For you have been born again. Peter is describing the truth of regeneration, a truth first spoken about by Jesus. Very simple, the way Jesus phrased it. If you're not born again, you're not saved, period. That's it. If you're not born again, you're not a child of God. In John 3, verses 3 to 5, Jesus said this. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Peter is saying, you've been born again. That's clear evidence of our salvation because you can't be saved apart from being born again. And it's clear that being born again is not a human effort. It's interesting that Nicodemus, even though he was not clear spiritually, he understands physically the problem. None of us can literally be born again. There is no human effort you could do to make that happen. The real issue is spiritual. And the way one is born again has to do with the Spirit of God's action in our hearts. Jesus went on to say this in John 3, verses 6 to 8. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Paul phrased the similar truth in this way in Titus 3, 5, and 6. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And again, this is all God's initiative. It's not man's. Jesus in John 6, 44 said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. James expressed the same truth this way in James 1, 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. And being born again took us from death to life. In Ephesians 2, it's one of the great theological expressions of this. Verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That statement is one of the most misunderstood in Christianity. People have, and I've said this before, I think I've preached it, I think I've said it in the Sunday school class, people have this wrong notion that human beings are sick and they need some medicine to get better. Human beings aren't sick, they're dead. The gospel isn't about going through a hospital room, it's about going through a morgue. And there's a difference. Jumping down to verse 4 of Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. 
So Peter is addressing all of those comprehensive truths in this simple declaration. For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. It's really calling us to think about how it is that we are children of God. It came about because of seed, and we understand that this word has many uses in Scripture, but in this context is just contrasting the material world versus the spiritual world. There's a sense in which most life that we see comes from seeds. Most plants are that way. Even from a human perspective, we refer to the reproductive act, the scriptures refer to it as seed. And that applies to animals. What does all life on this earth have in common? Whether it's plants, whether it's your flowers, whether it's your animals, whether it's your pets, whether it's us. What's the commonality? We all die. Every one of us is perishable. But Peter is making it clear that's not a part of our salvation. There's nothing perishable a part of our salvation. The seed we have is different. It's imperishable. Verse 23 explains what it is. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Scripture can't be more clear than this. The seed by which we came to faith is the living and enduring word of God. Now, he uses two different descriptors, living, enduring. Living, certainly, it means the word's not dead. And it's the kind of thing that I think we can be tempted to just sort of look at and go, okay, I understand that. But sometimes it's good to use simple truth that we can understand because we're believers and hold it up against the world in which we live. And as church members whose duty it is to listen to the word taught and apply it, it's good to understand some things about why we do what we do. Most people in the world, if they know what a Bible is, think it's pointless. They may revere it in some sense. Well, it's a holy book. Be careful. Don't burn it. Don't drop it. Don't throw it. But the fact remains, they think it's old stuff written by old people that really doesn't have anything to do with modern life. As society has taken a bulldozer to centuries of accepted norms, front and center has been bulldozing the Bible off the screen. And people that do it, do it with impunity because really, who's going to miss it? It's just this old, pointless book. But the Bible makes it clear from its own testimony, that it's still at work. The Bible still judges the heart. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's why the Bible is being bulldozed away. Because people don't want their hearts exposed. People don't want to hear things that are going to make them feel bad. But beyond being alive for convicting people of sin, the reality is it's this living word that gives us new life. In John 5:24, Jesus said this, "Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life 
and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. How do you know for certain that the Word of God is living? You've got spiritual life. You've got spiritual life. That's what it does. The second descriptor is enduring. The reality is that God's Word is not perishable. But beyond that, it's not outdated. It's not in need of fine-tuning for today's ears. The message of Scripture is as relevant and pertinent today as when it was penned thousands of years ago. And this flatly contradicts the mindset of so many churches and Christians in our society. Even churches and Christians would say, well, the Bible is good as far as it goes. I mean, it can help you with some things, but we've got to really be more relevant than this. We've got to speak to people where they are. We've got to go beyond just the narrow confines of Scripture and expand a little bit so we can really meet people's needs. That's heresy. The Scriptures are sufficient. They're not outdated. They don't need to be tempered. They don't need to be fixed. How can something that is alive and that lasts need our help? Many of you have come from other places, so you understand that. Some of you maybe not. Some of you maybe this is the first church you've been a part of. But if you've been around, what you realize, and I say this without any hesitation, without fear of contradiction, to find a church where a man like Steve Kreloff started preaching in 1981... And in 2017, he's doing the exact same thing with the exact same book. It's unheard of. It's so rare. This church is so blessed. If you don't, you should pray for his health so that he could do this another 20 years. And yet, I've shared before, I've heard critique of him. He and I sometimes laugh about it because if we weren't both in the room, we wouldn't believe it. We've heard critique of him of all you do is talk about the Bible. He'll never do anything else. If he ever does anything else, Michelle will come to the elders and say, Steve's fallen off his rocker. We need to get him out of here. <laughs> but that's not going to happen. Because that's a man who's devoted his life to one thing. Taking this old ancient book and talking to our hearts with it. That's the point of this church that should be the point of more churches. But here's how all of that theology and all that Truth in this one simple verse comes together. That's how we were saved. That's what the Spirit used to save us. The Spirit regenerated our hearts, but it did not occur in a vacuum. It occurred in response to the Word of God being preached to us. I shared a couple of weeks ago this whole concept of regeneration and my being born again in 1993, but it was in response to the Word. That's what the Spirit used. The Spirit works through the Word. He always does. And because it's a work of the Spirit, it's not perishable, it's imperishable. And if that's what saved you, you're more equipped than ever to obey. To further solidify his point, 
Peter reaches back to an Old Testament text. It's actually from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. And he gives what you would call a paraphrase. In many Bibles, including my version, whenever it's quoting the Old Testament, it's in all caps. But this isn't a strict quote where you'd put quotation marks around it like we do in English. This is more Peter referencing the Old Testament and speaking its truth. The way we see it in our Bibles, in verse 24, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, says in essence the exact same thing. There's a slight differences. But again, Peter wasn't quoting like we do. But the reality is, is Peter is picking up on a picture that Isaiah painted that's very understandable based on life. He's taking a fact of nature and making a theological statement that should help us better picture ourselves, but also better picture the Word of God. Peter's phraseology, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. So he's comparing all flesh, meaning all humanity, to grass and flowers of the field. If you were to read commentaries, you could read this long explanation that goes beyond what's necessary as to what particular types of plants might have been in view. The fact remains, as I was getting in my truck this morning, in my front yard there were weeds with flowers on it, and I thought, that's it. That's it. I don't like those weeds, but they're going to die. And those flowers are going to eventually go away. Those aren't the kind of flowers you put in a vase, but you see them. But here's the point. We all know that that kind of stuff is just going to pass away. It's going to die. It's going to fall off. And what Peter is stating as truth, which Isaiah originally stated, is that, look, all of human activity and effort isn't anything more than that. You take the highest achievements of mankind on the earth apart from Christ and really they're no more lasting than that weed that I passed in my front yard that nobody will see or even know about a month from now. You think of the billions of people that have lived on planet earth, very few of them anybody even knows about. And even the most famous ones, we don't walk around chanting their name every day. So human existence, all of human effort really is worth nothing, but the contrast and where it comes home, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now an interesting thing happens in these verses though. As Peter is quoting or paraphrasing or restating truth from Isaiah, he changes a term. If you look up in verse 23, it talks about The living and enduring word of God. And the Greek word for word is logos. It's a comprehensive term. It's a normal translation. But when you get to the end of verse 25, but the word of the Lord endures forever, he switched the word choice. He's not using the word logos. He's using something else. It's a word called rhema. And it's something more specific. It has the idea of a specific utterance or of a saying. And in its context, 
Peter, I think, is being very specific. He's not just talking about a comprehensive view of all the Word of God, which it still is enduring, but in terms of us loving one another, he's really zeroing in again on the source of our salvation. Look at verse 25. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word, Rama, which was preached to you. Peter is tying up for us all of this together and saying there is a central commonality in your salvation. It was the specific proclamation of salvation in Jesus Christ that you heard, that's what was preached to you, that's what you believed, that's the means by which you were born again, and that's what enables you to love. There's no question God gifted different members of the body of Christ differently. That's not up for debate. The scripture even refers to the fact that some people are hands, some people are eyes, some people are different parts. God gives different gifts so that the entire church can function as he intended. But the reality is the command to fervently love one another from the heart transcends our individual giftedness. If you've been born again by the message of the gospel that was preached to you, you can love from the heart fervently as much as any other believer. You don't have Pastor Steve's gifts to teach and preach for umpteen years. That's okay. You can still love. Maybe you don't have the financial means to just give tons of money as someone might with a spiritual gift of giving that God blessed. That's okay. You can still love. Maybe you don't have a specific spiritual gift of helps that it sort of makes you in tune for every opportunity to serve. That's okay. You can still fervently love one another. Because you were saved by the specific message that was preached. I think what Peter was doing at verse 22 and he's bookending with verse 25 is pointing out that there is a level playing field when it comes to our status as believers. There aren't different forms of salvation. Well, you got a really good salvation and you got an okay salvation and you got a mediocre salvation. That's not it at all. Every one of us was saved in the same way with the same gospel message. So we can love. In fact, we have an eternal bond that transcends this earth because we weren't saved with merely imperishable things. We were saved by imperishable truth that gives us an eternal bond that's going to transcend this earthly body. And it ought to motivate us in living out our faith to exercise love right now. As I shared with you last time, I think this church fellowship does a better job of loving than it gets credit for. I saw even this week, not only in our own lives, but in my role at the church, people reaching out to me wanting to help other Christians that they heard had a need. 
It happens frequently, and just as it also happens frequently, the person that reached out to me didn't want to be known for it. In fact, they specifically said, can you keep my name out of it? Their desire was just to love. They don't want the credit for it. From time to time in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul rebuked churches, but he also commended churches. And as much as I understand the life of this Sunday school class within the context of our body as a whole, I share all the truths that Peter say and I commend you. I see us doing this in great ways. But normally when the Apostle Paul commended someone, quite often you see this add-on. He'd say, excel still more. In other words, you're doing great, do even more. I'd love for us to lead by example. I'd love for us to make it even more loving. And so I'm going to encourage you again as we wrap up this time and we move to prayer. I finished much faster than I thought I would. I'm very pleased by that. Share needs you have. Real needs, of course. It's always possible that will be used. It's always possible that someone will slip into our midst and manipulate things. It's always possible that someone comes in and shares need for selfish reasons. But don't be cynical like I am. Certainly we can have wisdom. But listen. And if you hear need and you can meet it, meet it. By this, all men will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. Please bow with me as I close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this class and for my brothers and sisters in this church. Lord, you have done a great work in our lives by saving us from a worldly perspective we are not the best and the brightest and the strongest and the smartest and the most influential and the wealthiest and the best looking and on and on it goes by any worldly standards we're a motley group and yet Lord you chose to save a motley group like us, a motley man like me, you chose to save us to display your glory to the world. Lord, help us to live out our faith. You command us, Lord, to love one another. We're not a lovable people. We're troublesome. We can be frustrating to one another. We can be annoying to one another. On and on it goes. And yet, Lord, we have a common bond. You sent your son to die for us. When we look at one another in this class and in our church, help us not see the worst of one another. Help us see the common bond we have in having been born again by the message of the gospel through your spirit. 
And in light of that, Lord, help us love one another. I pray that you would continue to help us become better friends. In our prayer times, I pray over time we'll get to know one another very well. I pray that our supper groups will help us in that endeavor, Lord. I pray that we will become better friends with one another so that we have more trust to share when we have needs. And I pray, Lord, that through our actions, other people will see that we truly love you. And you'll use that to save the loss and strengthen your sheep. And Lord, as we again reflect on the fact that today we'll celebrate your death, we'll be reminded of your death, help it be a sobering time, Lord, but also a time of gratitude where we truly reflect on the miracle that you saved us in spite of who we are. We love you, Lord, and we say thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.